Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, we begin a brand new series this morning on a subject that I think is very critical for the time in which we find ourselves at Covenant. I, I truly believe that this is a critical juncture. Let me give you a little background of what I'm talking about. Um, I've not actually been here very long. I'm in my fourth year as the lead pastor here. This church is 30, going to be 33 years old this year, uh, this coming October. And so obviously God has done multiple wonderful things that I was not even a part of. Many of you have been here longer than me, and you can testify that. I hope you'll tell some of those stories. And so really, I'm limited by the vantage point of my own experience. But from that experience, I want to speak for just a moment and just share with you, kind of give you a recap of the mind-blowing things that God has done just over roughly the last 36 months. In fact, if, if you bought a new, a brand new car right when I came here, chances are better than average. God has done all of this, and you still haven't paid that sucker off yet. And so let me just share with you just a few things that have happened. We are out of debt, and our budget is up, and we're very grateful for that. Yeah. Um, I just, I didn't see that one coming. I saw it coming, but I just thought it would be, you know, 2020. And it was like the Lord looked down middle of last year and went, yeah, too, too, too long. We'll, we'll do that a little sooner. Uh, we're, so we're looking at that, that increased capacity. We have new efforts that are going on in Southeast Asia, as well as Ocean City, that team that we just prayed for. Those, those efforts were non-existent just four years ago. One America, West Virginia was chartered in this church. It doesn't belong exclusively to us. It's a multi partnership from, from a number of different entities, faith-based predominantly. We've got hundreds of coordinated volunteers now working together to combat the opioid crisis in this area, recovery coaches being trained in multiple churches. All of that started right here when these people, you, God's people at Covenant said, we're going to give and we're going to launch this because we're tired of seeing people created in the image of God dying for literally no reason. We're going to make a dent in this opioid crisis and we're already seeing part of that happen. M a number of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and we're always grateful to see that. There's a different culture here as well. I have to say that from the time I first got here, not that we were wicked or that you could ice skate up and down the aisles, it was so cold, but just we're seeing an improved culture that understands the importance of unity, commitment to the entire body of Christ, a far greater spirit of love and deference. Some of you that have come and become part of the covenant family since that point have, have been part of the solution for that. And so many of you who have been here for years, who have longed for that kind of atmosphere, finally starting to see it take place through your own contributions. And of course, all of that is just a start and it is merely a pretext, I believe, to so much that is ahead of us including the bolstering and the strengthening and the multiplication of the very student ministry that we just witnessed a few moments ago as we laid hands on these young people and sent them out. Pray for us. 
We will be meeting with parents. We will be meeting more with the youth volunteers. We will begin to interview candidates as we seek the, a new pastoral staff addition that will focus exclusively on student ministry. I can't wait to see that happen. Additional services on this campus, additional locations in other places as we export the word of the Lord through the covenant family, not just to West Virginia, but to Maryland and to Virginia, to have locations in three different states, to plant churches independent of us in addition to all of that. Greater partnership with local school systems that will be right next door. So I said earlier, if you bought a new car when I first got here, you probably haven't paid it off yet. If you buy one today, you won't have it paid off before there's an elementary school right next door and a middle school right next door to that. We believe God is sending us those people and those children and those partnerships, and we will be involved in that, and, and we look forward to those opportunities that he's going to put in front of us. Also, the replication of so much of what we're doing in community service here in Shepherdstown, all over the tri-state area, more investment in global missions because we are not, I repeat, not nearly, not giving nearly enough to global missions and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Expect to hear more and to see more of that as well. I believe all of that is in our future, but that means given what's in our past and what's in our future, we're at a really critical point right now. We can either reach that future or not reach that future, and I believe all of the difference can be staked on whether or not we are ready for the spiritual wrestling matches that are to come. And let me tell you why that is. We're at a critical point because I can guarantee you that our enemy is more aware of these realities than you are. I can guarantee you that he is not happy. I can further guarantee you that he will do everything that he can to upend and upset that apple cart so that those things do not happen. I guarantee that he already knows the, the, the points of vulnerability for our attack. I guarantee he will attack our unity. I guarantee he will use misdirection. I guarantee he will throw everything in his arsenal that he can send our way in order to send us back to where we have been. We have to be ready. Most of you know the, the date, December 7th, 1941. Former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt called it a day that would live in infamy. It was the day when the empire of Japan uh, successfully executed a sneak attack on the United States Navy on our Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. What you may not know is that aside from making sure they had a number, uh, the right number of airplanes, the appropriate number, uh, you know, artillery, the right number of pilots, that they had assessed our strengths and our weaknesses, they had also examine the timing. When would be exactly the right time to attack the Pacific fleet? Because if the timing isn't right, they're going to repel our attack. We're going to be defeated and we're going to have to go back to Tokyo with our tail between our legs. We don't want to do that. We want the ultimate defeat of the American Pacific fleet. And so the question then was, when is the right time to make the attack? And the Japanese discovered that the most ideal time to attack the Americans would be on a Sunday morning after a Friday in which the Navy had received its paychecks. Think about that for a minute. All right, you're living in paradise. You don't expect anything. Everybody's doing great. It's a beautiful time. You get your paycheck. You go out. You hit the sauce. You wake up Sunday morning hungover from everything you did Saturday, uh, Friday night and all day Saturday and all into Saturday night. It is the perfect time to attack. 
they were asleep. And the result of that is the picture you can see on the screen and the pictures that you see of Pearl Harbor. Even now that we will celebrate this coming December will be the 79th anniversary of that phenomenal attack on our naval fleet. Because they were asleep and unaware and not ready on Friday and Saturday, they were devastated on Sunday. Brothers and sisters, you and I right here and right now face a similar threat because we're in a sweet season right now. And I don't think it's wrong to enjoy it, amen? To look around and to enjoy the peace and the harmony, the fellowship that we're having to one another, the smiles that you see on the faces out there in the foyer, the baptism waters stay stirred, and I'm really happy about that. We're seeing God do some incredible work, but let us not be lulled to sleep in the midst of all of those warm fuzzies. The enemy is aware. The enemy is going to be ready. In fact, 1 Peter 5 puts it this way, be sober-minded. Be watchful. You don't have to be paranoid. You can enjoy the good times. That's fine. But make sure that you stay alert. Be watchful. Why is that? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is on the prowl. Satan wants your defeat. He wants this church divided. He wants you gossiping and sinning. He wants your home. He wants your children. And the scriptures warn us that he's ready to take what he wants. The question is, are we? Are we ready for the war that is coming? Now, I had to apologize to someone on social media because they saw our, our graphic for this new series and they thought that it was going to be about a literal war. That somehow something was happening politically in the world and that this church was officially taking a position and advocating for going overseas and just blowing the mess out of somebody. And I had to apologize. And no, that's not what we mean at all. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We understand that the civil authorities have their responsibilities, and sometimes that means that war is necessary. We're not naive people, but we're also not warmongers, and we believe that ultimately the church's role is to bring peace and reconciliation. And I quoted 2 Corinthians in the passage that talks about all of that stuff, and, and I just apologize for the miscommunication. But make no mistake, there is a war we are called to fight, and we will be looking at what that means in just a moment. But the question is, are you ready? Now, here's the good news. It's not complicated to get ready. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to get ready. You don't have to have military training to get ready. You do have to be willing to die to get ready. You have to be willing to be broken to get ready. You have to be willing to have the, alter, the, the course of your life altered in order to get ready. So it won't be easy to get ready. But it's also not very difficult to understand how to get ready. Let me ask you two really simple questions to get started. Just ask these of yourself. Number one, how many Bibles do you have in your home? And number two, how many people do you have in your home? For most of us, we're going to have more of the former than we do the latter, aren't we? And now, if you're one of those people that for whatever reason doesn't have a Bible, we got like a truckload of them right back there, right in the back. Just see one of our ushers and they'll give you one. If you find one on a shelf, just open it up. If it doesn't have anybody's name in it, consider it yours. Amen? It belonged to us for the express purpose of giving it away to you. Moreover, if you're on our live feed watching from some country where you can't get access for whatever reason to the Word of God, you put it in the thread. You just put a little comment in the thread. Our tech people will get that to the appropriate people on our staff, and we will get you a Bible, won't we, church? We will do it. We have no problem doing it. But here's my point. 
if there really are more of those books than there are people in your house, you already have every resource. I find it ironic that in the Western world, all of the access we have combined, you know, compared to living in a world where more than two billion people have either very limited or no access to the Word of God, that we would think we're the ones unprepared or somehow incapable of waging this war. Everything we need, we have right here. We have it. And the question is, are we using it? So let me read again a part of the text that Pastor Ted read at the outset of our time of worship together. Paul said in Ephesians 6, and this is the passage that we're going to be looking at verse by verse all the way through the summer. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Make sure you pay attention to that. Like I had to correct myself with the person on social media. We're not advocating physical war. We're not saying that it's not, unnecess- that it's not necessary at times, but we're saying as the people of the Prince of Peace, we're not the people whose jurisdiction it is to dictate that. We wrestle in another realm. That person who's not like you, that person who worships a a different God than you do, that person that you might even be afraid of is not your enemy. You do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Instead, we wrestle against rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And I find it ironic that we are far too easily afraid of people on this planet we shouldn't be afraid of. And conversely, we're far too too ambivalent about things we really ought to be concerned about behind the veil. Amen? This is something we need to be aware of. There's another reality that we can't always see, that our senses won't always pick up. And therefore, here's what we have to do in the face of that reality. Take up the whole armor of God. The Greek term there is the word panoply. It means literally from head to toe, you are going to be covered by an armor, a spiritual armor, and that you will be able in that armor to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. That's spiritual warfare. In a nutshell, that's what it is, all right? So whatever you think, when you think of spiritual warfare, some people get these false ideas in their minds about what it is. Spiritual warfare is not a gunfight with the devil, okay? Spiritual warfare is not some sensational story of exorcisms or even miracles, although we certainly believe those things can and and do happen. The core of spiritual warfare happens one day at a time, one prayer at a time, one Bible verse at a time, one worship service at a time, and over the next several weeks, We're going to learn how is it that we spiritually arm ourselves and how can we know that we are spiritually armed given the future that we know is in front of us as a church if we're awake. How do we fight this battle? And so that takes me to a cautionary tale elsewhere in the Bible that I want us to look at as we open up this subject beginning this summer series. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, flip over to Acts chapter 19 the 19th chapter of Acts. And what you're going to find there is the story of a group of men who were not ready for the battle. It's important for us to be ready. So we're going to start this summer series by emphasizing exactly how important it is by looking at a story in which there was a group of people who were woefully unarmed. This is a story of one city among many cities that in the first century was profoundly affected 
by Christianity and the Christian gospel. It was the city of, of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, the thing about it, it was one of the most pagan cities in the region. Right in the center of that city was this large statue to the Greek god, goddess Artemis. Now, you may not recognize her by her Greek name. You might, you might recognize her Roman name. Her Roman name was Diana. The Romans believed that she was the daughter of Zeus. So basically, the people in Ephesus were worshiping Wonder Woman. That's what was happening. And if you don't get that connection, just go to Google and DC Comics and look her up, and she's got this whole cool backstory about herself, right? So you've got the, the cult of Wonder Woman, basically, in the first century in Ephesus. Into that environment comes the Apostle Paul, armed with the gospel, and with him come miracles, these unexplained healings, exorcisms, demonic forces that flee in fear. And, and, and in this story, we're introduced to two types of religious leaders, the real and the fake. The real and the fake. Here's my grave concern for where any church would be that's at the juncture we're at right now. But since I pastor covenant for us, family, this is, this is my, my, I believe, God-given grave concern for us, is that we will be less like Paul in this moment and more like the sons of Sceva in this moment, that we will not be ready and that because we are not ready, we will suffer as individuals, our families will suffer, and our church will suffer. We need to pay attention. And so let me share with you three things that we need to understand that are lessons that arise out of this narrative of the sons of Sceva. The first is this, spiritual warfare, when it is done well, when it is done in a way that honors the Lord Jesus, spiritual warfare is done by the power of God and only and ultimately by the power of God. Look at verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that he touched with his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, you have to be careful not to read your own 21st century experience into this first century narrative because you got a lot of people out there in our day who, who make something of this in order to make a profit. If you've ever maybe perhaps foolishly purchased or you've seen someone purchase or you've seen some minister who called himself a minister of the gospel trying to sell a prayer cloth, okay? Not at all what this is. And we know that in a couple of ways, but probably the chief way is that these were just the everyday things that Paul would use for his livelihood. We forget sometimes that Paul wasn't just a theologian or an apostle or a pastoral type. He wasn't just the writer of nearly half of our New Testament. Paul was a tent maker because he would go and start these new churches. And, and when they're really small and just beginning, they don't always have the capital to pull together to, to compensate someone to lead them. And so Paul made his living by making tents. And so when you read about the handkerchief, you're, you're reading about the basically the band that went around the top of his head to keep the sweat from getting into his eyes as he would work hard in the sun in all these different areas. When you read about the apron, you're reading about that article of clothing that was common to tent makers so, to, so as to keep the tanning chemicals off of their clothing to protect their clothing. So all this is, is the normal things that Paul is wearing every day being taken off and somebody grabs it and takes it to another as a point of contact and, and healing is found and demons are fleeing. Here's the thing, the power didn't come from Paul hawking those items to the people. 
The power came from one man who was simply living in complete submission to the mission of God on his life. And so powerful was that dependence that the objects themselves carried the divine power to heal. From Paul's life of submission to those people who needed that healing. And and the overall point here is that what Paul did here was totally the work of God. It's totally the work of God. We, we see this borne out in the scriptures. Everywhere in the Bible that we see God's power displayed most, uh, most noticeably is a place where, first and foremost, his people had that power taken away from them. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't like that. I don't like to have power taken away from me. I don't like to be out of control. I, I don't like that at all. I don't like not knowing what's com- coming next. I don't like not only calling an audible, I don't like it, especially when I don't know which audible to call. You ever been there in life? You say, I don't know. I don't even know what's next. I don't have any control over my life. I don't know what to do. And it's at those times that we need to be broken before God rather than immediately trying to seize control. Because if you try to seize control, you're going to miss some of those grandiose parts of your your life that God wants to reveal to you. And to be reminded of that, you just need to go back to some other scriptures. I think of Exodus 14, where God's people have been let go by Pharaoh, and either he changes his mind or he gets angry. We don't know what's motivating the guy at this point, but the Hebrew people find themselves on the banks of a sea that they cannot cross. That's in front of them. And behind them is an army pursuing them that at that point was the most powerful military in the world. You have no weapons. You have no military training. In fact, you just came out from under four centuries of slavery. You don't know how to organize, let alone defend yourself. You have an impassable sea in front of you and the most powerful army in the world behind you pursuing you. That's about as vulnerable as it gets, don't you think? And it is into that environment that the word of the Lord comes to the people of Israel and he says this, fear not, stand firm. (laughs) Ponder for a moment how ridiculous that must sound. Don't be afraid, stand firm, don't move. What comes next? See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And then comes these words, remember, As I see an impassable sea in front of me and a powerful army that I expect to kill me, pursuing me from the other side of me, and I hear these words from the Lord, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Think about that. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. You sit here and you stand firm and you fear not because I will bring an end to this entire army. I will fight for you. This is my moment of glory, not yours. And that is true in every encounter that involves spiritual warfare. We are not to walk away with that glory. God walks away with that glory. If I encounter spiritual warfare and I come out victorious, the way I know it was legitimate, the way I know I honored the Lord in that moment is that anybody who sees it gives great glory to my God and simultaneously says, and who was that idiot that was in the middle of it? The work of spiritual warfare is the work of God. And this is Paul. He's just walked into this wicked place and he's just being faithful 
understanding that this is the Lord's work. The thing that ought to scare us today is that there's so much that the Western church does and does with excellence, and there's not anything wrong with it necessarily, but so much of that can, that can be done apart from the power of God. That should scare us. We can grow exponentially. We can perform with excellence. We're, we're poised to do that right now. And listen, we should do that for the greater glory of God. We should work hard. We, could, we should work smarter and not harder. We should, uh, we, should, we should organize ourselves. There's some things I talked about a couple of Sundays ago at the business meeting that we've got to start firing on all eight cylinders. We need to do that, but we don't need to just do that. We need to do all of that as broken people because, brothers and sisters, if we do all of that and we start firing on all eight cylinders and we start growing exponentially, but we're doing it devoid of the power of God, what does it matter? What does it matter? Ask any oncologist and they will tell you just because something's growing doesn't mean it's healthy. It doesn't mean it's good. We need to make sure that we're growing the right thing. And the, the, the word of the Lord here in this narrative reminds us the only way we can do it is if we understand all of this is the work of the Lord. Every bit of it. We act by God's power. And then secondly, we act with God's authority because spiritual warfare is done under his authority. Oftentimes I'll, I'll do these, particularly if I'm in, a, in an area of the world as I have been in prior ministries I've been involved with and, and there are people there, overwhelming majority are not Christian and they, they tell me certain things and then I tell them certain things and then the dialogue is all, all of a sudden they come to the recognition that, that, that what I believe is that there's one and only one God and he's provided one and only one way for us to have our sins forgiven and it is a universal offer to the whole world. There's no more inclusive offer to the world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simultaneously, there's no more exclusive offer than the offer of Jesus Christ. You come through his shed blood and his bodily resurrection there's no other way to come and i've often gotten a response from people around the world who said by what authority and they're not even being disrespectful that is by what authority can you claim this well i don't have any authority except this christ is risen that's my authority Everything I proclaim is done under the authority of that God. And what we see here is a tragic example of a group of men who refused to do this. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So they see what Paul and the other apostles are doing and they go, wow, we... We want to do that too. So they keep using this name of Jesus and they start using Jesus like it's some sort of magic word. And they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. That's not just one set of coattails, that's two. These are people who don't know Jesus and don't know Paul, but they're trying to clamber onto the coattails of these two men in order to do something miraculous in order to make a name for themselves. And we wouldn't know anything about that, would we? Seven sons of a high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now, when you look at the extra-biblical history behind this, Josephus, who was a world-renowned Jewish historian, very meticulous in his record-keeping, makes no mention of anyone named Sceva in the line of high priests. If you take that very noticeable absence and you couple it with the fact that there were multiple religious fakes both in Ephesus and around these cities in Asia Minor. It leads us to believe that the father of these men, whoever the Sceva was, he too was not a legitimate priest. 
This was a day in which a lot of illegitimate religious leaders rose to great prominence to try to build a platform for themselves. If the sons of Sceva were living in the 21st century, before they tried this, they would have developed their own website. This is who we are. This is our platform. Black and white glossies, all of them with big shiny teeth. Here's a way to contact our agent to get us to come and speak to you for a nominal fee, of course. Going to try to make a name for themselves. That's a warning for us. Just because someone invokes the name of Jesus, just because somebody wears a cross, just because somebody sounds good, just because somebody stirs my emotions using religious language does not make their work real. It doesn't make our work real. In fact, I wonder how many people in front of me may be like that. You can speak the lingo, you're here every Sunday, you're active in ministry. You look great on the outside, but none of it's real. There's no real transformative change of heart. There's no genuine conversion to follow Jesus. I wonder if there's anybody in front of me today just like the sons of Sceva. You're trying to ride somebody else's coattails into heaven, into some sort of abundant life. If if you think that might be you, these next words should actually scare you. These sons of Sceva speak, invoking the name of Jesus and Paul. This time the demon speaks back. And he says three things to them. Jesus, I know. By the way, that word for knowledge doesn't just speak of cognitive recognition. You know, I've seen his picture in the paper or I know who he is experiential knowledge. Jesus, yep, the one who created us, the one we tried to rebel against, the one who kicked us out of heaven without even a fight, the one who speaks and we have to flee, the one who every time we encounter him assumes a command control relationship over us and sends us running like dogs with our tails between our legs. Jesus, yeah, we've met. And Paul, I recognize like, we haven't run into him yet, but we know of his work. We know of how close he walks with Jesus. We're keenly aware of the sanctified trouble that he has brought to the work we've been doing in Ephesus. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize. Who are you? Who are you? They invoke the name of Jesus and they are defeated. Look at the next verse. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. When somebody beats the pants off of you, literally, that's not just a physical assault. That's emotional, psychological. You're walking out of that joint with a soul wound, aren't you? I mean, this is ultimate humiliating defeat. And it happened because they were not recognized as a formidable enemy. See, that's what scares me when I think about where we're at right now as a church, the place at which God has brought us, the bright future that is ahead of us, and the enemy who, whether we will recognize it or not, is constantly scheming against us, is are we ready for this battle? Or are we going to find ourselves ill-prepared for it? I, I reflect on the question of how many of us could be in the same condition. We're not living our lives under God's authority, which means we're incapable of engaging in spiritual warfare in God's 
authority. You can't use authority that you're not willing to submit to. You can't barely crack a Bible and then use the name of Jesus like abracadabra. You can't despise the gathering of the saints and then all of a sudden expect spiritual victory in your family. This is something that has to be a consistent part of your life. One of the things we're going to learn together is that true spiritual warfare starts with just a brokenness. It starts in such a counterintuitive way. I mean, if you served in the military, you know how to get ready for battle, don't you? You train, and then you train some more, and then you beat up your friends so that you'll know how to beat up your enemies. Right? This is how you do it. You do live fire drills, you put on armor, you Kevlar, and you're, and you're locked and you're loaded, and you're, you're ready to go. Preparing for spiritual battle is the complete reverse of that. You go to your knees, you go to your face, and you humble yourself to the point of brokenness before the only authority that gets you through this with success. How, how do I do that? How do I do that? My friend Eric Mason planted and pastors a church in Philadelphia, and he used to put it this way. He said, between doctrinal soundness and spiritual brokenness, give me brokenness every single time. And if you think that means he doesn't value sound doctrine, you haven't listened to any of his sermons. He values sound doctrine. But his point is this, you can cross every T and dot every I and have all of your systems set up and know everything forwards and backwards, but not be spiritually broken and you get defeated. But if you're spiritually broken, he's like, you give me a legitimately spiritually broken man, I can fill brokenness with soundness, but you can't fill soundness with brokenness if the soundness has done nothing but produce arrogant pride in the other individual. I've had some conversations this past week. There's a large meeting that happened in Birmingham that I was a part of from a, from a distance, a network of churches that our church cooperates with. And I, it's always interesting, some of the guys that will have those conversations with their younger guys, and, and sometimes when they're arrogant and they, they think they got it all figured out theologically, it's, uh, those are called second-year seminary students. All right? Now, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with being a second-year seminary student. That's right. I was a second-year seminary student. You got you to gotta do that, okay? But if you've been pastoring 10 years and you haven't emotionally developed beyond the second year of seminary, you may be sound, but you're not broken, and you're going to go down. You're going to go down. Conversely, some of you, because I have the, the, the visceral, if you will, privilege I mean, it's hard for me to watch, but it's a privilege for, for me to be invited by so many of you into your lives and to see some of the things that you have to deal with as far as dysfunction or sickness or whatever, and you're broken and you've just taken one gut punch right after another, and you're the one thinking, how could God ever use me? Let me tell you something, brother, sister, you are exactly the person God can use. He has gotten you to a point where you got nothing left to do but to, but to depend on him. And brother, sister, that makes you the most dangerous kind of person to our enemy. Dangerous to him. I'm talking about making hell tremble in a way that no seminary graduate could ever dream of making hell tremble. But it takes brokenness to get that done. My big fear is that we'll do everything we do in our own strength under our own authority, and it'll all look great, but that we will do it as a proud people. Now, all of a sudden, we're the place to be. That's not, that's not the appropriate posture for a group of people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. 
who understand the, the position of grace into which we find ourselves, that fragile position into which we could have just as easily been cast into hell, and yet here we are. And we're going to assume a posture of pride and be in the place to be and be in the place where this is where it's all about. And that this is totally antithetical to what it really means to wage spiritual war. I do not want the forces of darkness to say to you, to me, to us, the same thing that they said to the sons of Sceva on this day in Ephesus. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize. Who are you? Who are you? And the only way to escape that is if we do this by God's power, in God's authority, and thirdly, for God's glory. Look at verse 17. This became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. No real big surprise there. If a group of dudes get beaten beyond recognition and they start running through your town naked, word's going to get out. We know this. That's going to attract attention. Something else it's going to do is it's going to instill a healthy fear. We see that in the next verse. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. You notice that? They were defeated. Jesus was glorified. I have to take stock of my own ministry that way. Jesus is glorified if I finish well. If I finish like Billy Graham finished. Jesus is also equally glorified if I make a shipwreck of my ministry by doing something foolish or something immoral, something disqualifying. Jesus will be glorified regardless. Now, that's not the question. The question is, will I honor him? Will I be victorious alongside of him? There's nothing more dangerous than a spiritual leader of any kind, but particularly a pastor who thinks God can't make it without me. You see these guys, they disqualify themselves from ministry, something happens, and they immediately, they start evading accountability. They don't submit to the authority of the local church. They scoot out from under it. They go somewhere, they start another one. Uh, we just had a situation uh, a few weeks ago where there was a guy, and I knew of his fall, and I knew that he was pretty much done, given the gravity of the things that he had done, and then all of a sudden, he pops back up. Why? Because he started his own platform. He's not accountable to anybody. Dangerous man. Very dangerous man. And usually what's going on in the mindset of people like that is they're thinking, well, I have to do this because otherwise God's kingdom won't go forward. Anyone, I would submit to you, who believes that about themselves or about another preacher has a way under-inflated view of the kingdom of God. He does not need me. He does not need you. He will be glorified whether or not we decide to actually be the church or just play church. So that's not really the question that's in view here. The question that's in view is, will we be broken and under his authority so that we can be victorious? He goes on. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. More success in the face of the defeat of these people. And incidentally, uh, I, one of the reasons that I suspect so much of what we do in the Western church isn't real 
is statistical analysis that 40% of people who call themselves Christians actually participate in some of the very things that you see the Ephesians burning right now. Ouija boards, horoscopes. I, I, I wonder how many people in front of me were just dumb enough. I love you, but just were dumb enough to go see that medium that came through town a few months ago. Really? Have you read the scriptures? Have you seen the penalty involved in consulting with those who presume to consult with the dead of trusting in those things rather than trusting God? Did you not see what that cost Saul, the first great king of Israel, when he did that? This stuff is real. And here's the thing. It, even if you do it, God will be glorified. He'll just be glorified in your defeat rather than in your spiritual blessing. So here's my primary question for all of us when it comes to spiritual warfare, because we're going to start talking about this. We're going to start unpacking Ephesians 6 this coming Sunday. Am I willing to submit myself to God? Am I willing to admit that my life is not my own and give my life to Him? Am I willing to live obediently? Is my greatest desire not to build my own platform, but to give Him glory? Am I that much infatuated with my Creator and my Redeemer? And a lot of the questions we're going to ask over the next several weeks will help you answer that question. When we get to the belt of truth, for example, and we ask a question like this, am I the same person when I'm up in front of all these people that I am when I'm in private? Because if I'm not, I'm probably not wearing the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. When I, when I am presented with choices of clear right and wrong, is the, not that I don't sin occasionally, but is the, is the path of my life, the general course of my life, does it reflect that I make the right choices by God's grace? That's spiritual warfare. It's not some external thing. It's an internal thing to make sure that I am armed so that I can move through this world in victory. It's going to get very personal because that's the only way to truly win the battle. One of the pieces of history that intrigues me most in Scripture is actually this history, the history of the church at Ephesus. If you back up one chapter in Acts, you start to see the origins of it in Acts chapter 18. This powerful preacher named Apollos comes into town, and he starts boldly proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Apparently, there were some things that weren't quite right, and so there's this woman named Priscilla together with her husband Aquila, and they kind of pull him aside and help straighten him out again. Broken man, preaching faithfully the power of the gospel. People coming to Christ just needs a little bit more soundness brought in there, maybe perhaps a little knowledge to add to that zeal, and then he becomes more powerful, and we see the gospel penetrate this area in such a way that people start melting down their miniature statues to Artemis and all of their magic spell books, and they start throwing all this into the fire, and then all of a sudden, it starts to upset some people because there's some silversmiths in town been making a lot of money off of this and now they're no longer melting down silver and making statue of art statues of artemis now the people are bringing back the statue statues of artemis they want a refund they want to melt this stuff down they're trying to repent of their sins they don't want to do this anymore and so these men get upset to the point that it causes a riot in the city think about that for a minute the planting of the gospel of jesus christ in ephesus is so powerful that it very quickly upends and upsets the economy of an entire city how many church plants do you know that are capable of that I did church planting for 12 years in the mid-Atlantic area and on five continents around the world, and I have discovered that there is a marked difference between starting a church and merely starting a worship service. 
You can do the latter, but you're not going to have much effect on the culture around you. You do the former, you bring the kingdom of God to an area, and it profoundly and at a very fundamental level starts to change the city. That's how powerfully the church at Ephesus comes into being. Three years later, Paul is getting ready to depart from Ephesus. He calls the elders of the church together that he has appointed. And he tells them, I have preached the whole counsel of God. I've given everything to you. I'm getting ready to depart. These are the ways that you need to lead God, God's people forward. And by the way, watch out because wolves will arise from within you. They're not, it's not going to be the Artemis worshiping people. They're those people that worship Wonder Woman, they're, you're going to see them coming. That, that's going to be obvious. They're going to arise from within. Watch out for them and be careful. We, then we hear Ephesus mentioned next in the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy, and Paul writes to this young pastor who now has responsibility these, for these people. This is how you order the congregation in worship. This is how you settle disputes. This is how you appoint elders. These are the qualifications that these men should have before you put them in a position like that. And be careful again, he says, guard yourselves. The last time we hear anything at all about Ephesus is in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says of them, number one, you're still doctrinally sound. That's a good thing. That's an important thing. Number two, he says, you preach the truth and you withstand evil. What does that mean? Well, to be blunt, it means that if they were in the 21st century, they would be one of the only 2% of churches in America who are actually obedient to Jesus when it comes to practicing church discipline. Withstanding evil. But then he says this, return because you have left your first love. And then comes a warning. If you do not return, I will take your witness out of this city. It's the analogy of a lampstand. This is your lamp. It is a light in this city, but I have my hand firmly on it. And if you do not obey and repent, I will simply take it out of the city. And then, that's it. Radio goes silent. We hear nothing else out of Ephesus. I've been to Ephesus. I've seen the final remnants of what was the church at Ephesus, which at that point in history had been renamed the Church of St. John. It's on top of a hill in between the ancient city of Ephesus and the modern city of Izmir that emerged out of Ephesus. It was destroyed completely by an earthquake in the 4th century. But the church, the body of Christ, is no longer there. And you say, well, pastor, that was 2,000 years ago. Churches don't last 2,000 years. Well, most of them don't, that's true. But Smyrna is still there, mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. In fact, just a few miles down the Turkish coastline. You can go to the modern city of Izmir, and you can see the church at Smyrna housed in a place that's about two blocks from the GNC. I'm not even lying. I was there. It's right across the street from the Izmir Hilton. 2,000 years later, they're still there. Why are they there? Why is Ephesus gone? At least a part of it has to be traced back to their disobedience. When a church no longer readies itself for war, See, there's another option that I want to call us to. I want this cautionary tale to settle in your soul, but I want us together to embrace what it calls us to. And that is that if we are broken before God, we can stand immovable before our enemy. That's what the Word teaches us. 
about spiritual warfare, that you can look at your enemy if you are broken before God and you can say to him, you might want me, but you can't have me. You might want my family and my children, you cannot have them. You may want this church, but you cannot have it. You might want this tri-state area. You may even think you've got it in your grip with all this addiction that's around us. You, in the name of Jesus, cannot have it. We can say that as the body of Christ. We can declare that, and that can be as real as the words that are declared if we will do it as people who are broken and wholly dependent and submissive to the Lord. But it all depends on us in answering to the question, are we really ready to wage war? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are victorious over every enemy. We thank you that through your death and resurrection, victory is already ours And we thank you for this humble truth that we don't have to prepare in in the sense that the world thinks prepare when it comes to preparing for this kind of battle. We need only to do what you commanded the Israelites to do, what you command the church to do in the first century, what you command us to do today. Stand firm, fear not. Be broken before you, wholly dependent upon you, wholly obedient to you, and may you show your glory and your victory through our lives and the lives of this church. Father, prepare us for the war that is to come. Prepare us this summer to arm ourselves with a panoply from head to toe that hell cannot penetrate so that we might faithfully declare the name of Jesus in this area and around the world. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.